Welcome into another edition of Heat Check. It is late on Wednesday evening, December 30th, 2020. We just finished up watching the Cotton Bowl in which Oklahoma thrashed Florida. Um, Peyton is going to have to answer for the SEC's no-show in the bowl game. Tell me what the excuse is again. I don't answer for the entire SEC. What? You, you seem to a little bit earlier. No, maybe I only when they win. They 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 it just means more. It just means more. It just means more when they win. When the SEC wins, it just means more. It's when small print. Right. When I, the SEC wins, that's why we chant SEC. <laughs> yes. Well. All right. That we're we're coming off of that. We have a packed episode. It's the last one of 2020. Um, I think it's a year that we are all very glad to see go. And we're closing it out by bringing on a good friend of ours, Braden Bell. He's the voice of the Cal Baptist Lancers. We talked to him about plenty of stuff, but uh, mainly about just how this year has gone, how Cal Baptist uh, is developing as one of the newer programs in Division One, and a bunch of other things. What, what really stood out um, before we send it to the interview? What stood out from our discussion with Braden to you, Peyton? Well, I mean, Braden was a personal mentor of mine, especially coming in. He was a, a senior my freshman year and really helped me in my personal growth. So to see him growing professionally the way he has over the last two years has been really cool, especially at a place like Cal Baptist where, and we talked about this, but the program and him are kind of, they're growing together at the same time. Um, he's taking the first steps of his career as a play-by-play guy an excellent play-by-play guy, if I might add, at a school that seems to have a vision and a trajectory upward, as well as a program. So just talking to him about that was really cool. Yeah, and it, it's a program that um, you can see the foundations of great success and and uh, kind of the developments of where they can go in the next three to five years. Um, and maybe make some noise uh, in, in waction as we discussed. So with that being said, we will send it to, we will send it to our interview with Braden. Joining us on the show today is the voice of the Cal Baptist Lancers. It is our good friend, Braden Bell. Braden, how are you doing? I'm great guys. Hope you guys had a good uh, holiday season. Um, Happy to be on the program. A big fan of Heat Check for a long time. One of the best shows out there. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, so we wanted to bring you on and, and chat a little bit about CBU basketball, about basketball, and, and the, you being one of the few people that gets to be in the arena for these CBU games and just part of the experience of this program kind of getting off of its feet. So a lot of people probably listening to this have not necessarily heard of CBU before. It's a relatively new program, second year making the transition into the D1 level. Um, give the by the book spark notes uh, drive by of what CBU basketball is like and what they're about. 
Well, first off, I would not blame anyone, anyone that does not know or had never heard of them. Um, I got my job there in October of 2019. Before that, I had not ever heard of CBU either. So uh, <laughs> it is relatively new. I guess the best way I can put it in terms of maybe some of your listeners that would understand, um, it's, it's somewhat like GC. Um, it's, a, it's a private school in Riverside, uh, California. Enrollment, just about 11,000. But uh, the jump that the program has made in the past 10 years is really insane. So in 2008, it was an NAIA school. So it was a tiny school made the jump to D2 um, and had a great amount of success there. Multiple uh, trips to the uh, tournament in D2 and, and went to the final four a couple times as well. Um, that's where head coach Rick Croy, who's still there right now came into play and then made the jump to D1. Like you said, this is the third year in the transition um, this year for CBU. And I mean, really I just jumped in in, in year two last year and the makeup of the team felt like a, pretty decent mid-major it, it obviously isn't a, a powerhouse yet but considering where the program was just 10 years ago if you were to step on campus and, and go look at the facilities and stuff you wouldn't think this is a second year transition program um the arena is four years old holds over 5,000 people it's beautiful state-of-the-art everything um the campus is awesome super clean and obviously you're in southern california you're 45 minutes away from the beach so I sound like I'm recruiting you guys. Is it working? <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask you: Is CBU the next Gonzaga? Well, no one's we're talking Gonzaga. No, no one's going to be Gonzaga. Um, I, I, I can tell you based on what I've seen and the way we recruit, the way um, this program's coached, and and the facilities are already better. St. Mary's is the one that I would that I would look to. Um, okay. Coach Croy. Our head man was an assistant under Randy Bennett. He was there when Matthew Delavidova was in, uh, at St. Mary's. So that pipeline's already there. Tons of Australians coming to CBU already. So that's a similarity as well. Um, a smaller private school. I mean, comparing someone to Gonzaga is like, you know, it's right. just not attainable. But yeah. <laughs> and, and even, even St. Mary's is, is legit. But I, I think that, you know, eventually, and, and this is just me speaking, this isn't, you know, anything proven yet or anything that's even been talked about. But I think eventually if this, if this school and this program can end up in the WCC, that's, I mean, where they'd want to be. The fit makes sense. Um, if it ever happens, and that would be years down the line, obviously. But I think that's kind of the program and that's kind of the mold CB is trying to go after. So yeah. then tell me what it's kind of been like coming in here from the, from the ground up, getting in, at the ground level and watching this thing grow. What's this experience been like, not only this year, this year is so weird, but over the last two years, kind of being a part of something as it's starting to bloom? It's really fun. And it's a great opportunity, I think, for, for me, just because a lot of the people I'm working with, so for example, our SID, uh, Danny Cross, who I stay with on the road and we're always together. Um, this is his first D1 job. Well, he, he worked at a an NAIA up in Oregon, um, but this is his first D1 job. And then there's just so many of the support staff and, and obviously the coaching staff, this is their third D1 as well for, for all of them besides one. Um, that's Adam Jacobson, who, who previously was at Hawaii, but um, you, you've got a bunch of newness and a lot of excitement and everyone wants to continue to build. And I think that's something that can be a little rare, especially when you're you know a smaller school, a mid-major who hasn't had that success so far. 
um, to no fault of their own. But I think to a lot of times in, in teams we see, especially in our conference, we see it all the time. It just seems like there's staleness mm-hmm. and there isn't that, that hunger to get better and to grow and to grow a fan base and to recruit and to get transfers. CBU has that. And, and I think it isn't just because they're so new at D1. I think it's, it's because of the administration, it's because of the facilities, the location um, that, that they want to be great. And I think, you know, the whack isn't talked about a lot in college basketball, but there's a lot of uh, realignment rumors going on right now in the conference. And, and you already have GCU who obviously has incredible facilities and, and looking pretty good under coach Drew. And then you have Mexico state who has dominated the league. So between GCU, New Mexico state and CBU, I think the, the conference at the top at least um, should be pretty good for a few years to come. So I, I had tuned into the opener between CBU and USC in, in large part because I wanted to see Evan Mobley play. Um, but what stood out to, what <laughs> exactly, but what stood out to me was just the style of basketball and the competitiveness that CBU had. Um, they take so many three pointers. They've made 12.8 per game, which is third in the nation. Um, it's just a fun style of basketball, but how do you think that that has kind of translated to quick success? And is that, sustainable because I, I know you've seen a lot of that kind of basketball watching the, the guard you of ASU at the end of your time at ASU and then your first job is is another team that plays kind of a similar guard oriented attack yeah so I'll kind of unravel it this way because I think it's harder to play that style of basketball at a power six program because you have programs and you have so many big guys in whack or, or other mid-major leagues you're not going to see that. You're not going to see that physicality very much, especially especially on the West Coast. Um, so I think it's a little more sustainable for CBU than ASU. But I'll tell you, as a broadcaster, it's fun. I mean, we don't have any grind them out, you know, 55 to 62 finishes. We are usually, even in conference games, at least in the 70s, and and typically they're very close games. At least they were last year. We'll see what this year's conference um, season has in store when it starts um, early next month. But it's certainly fun to watch, and I, I do think that it's by design, obviously. Um, and I've, I've heard this from the coaching staff that you know, we recruit shooters. And we want shooters. We also want athleticism as well, and every team does, and, and every team says they want shooters as well. But, I mean, it shows. Um, right before we went on air, I told you Farron Flavors Jr., who was a starter last year, and, and he's now at Oklahoma State, and he starts, and he's just a straight sniper. I mean, he's not gonna he's not gonna wow you with his defense or his pass abilities, but he's gonna knock down threes a consistent clip. Um, and we have guys like that this year. You mentioned the USC game. I don't know if I've ever seen a shooting performance like that before. It was it was absurd. It was insane. Um, you know, is it, it looked like four Jimmer Fredettes running around, and that's what I kept saying on our broadcast. A bunch of little white guys out there shooting from you know. 10 feet behind the three-point line, pulling up like Lillard and drilling him. And USC was stunned in that moment, and, and so was I, frankly. But, you know, like, I, I know I didn't completely answer your question there, but rounding out, I think this is what that program wants. And as they continue to grow, I think some of the other facets they're going to have to work on besides shooting, because that's already been established and it's already there. Um, they're going to have to find, you know, one of those guys can go to the bucket and score it at will. And I know that's hard to get, but we had that last year in Milan Aqua, who was the, the whack player of the year and averaged 20 points a game. Um, mm-hmm. 
he had that ability where he he was a good shooter, but he wasn't like a knockdown, but he had that ability to go to the rim. And I think that's kind of where the program needs to go from here on is finding another guy like that. So describe for me what it's been like for you. And I know we kind of already touched on it a little bit, but coming out of college, you are the voice of a team. Like you are the narrator for this team's entire journey, especially at the beginning here. What has that experience kind of been like? Has it been surreal at all for you to be that guy? Yeah. Um, I, I think at certain moments it definitely has been, Peyton. Um, a few things that really stood out to me, especially year one, and this year so much different, and travel and everything, but just being with the team as much as you are, especially on the road, is, is a really cool thing because you get to see the ins and outs of how a team prepares how much goes into it, um, the bonding behind the scenes when, when the team's eating meals together, how cool that is and, and how it's really laid back. And then how, and I'm sure it's like this for most programs, but especially here at CBU, how it can go from laughing, joking, eating pasta at dinner in a hotel, and then the flip of the switch, and then you're watching film serious all of a sudden. And, and there's no switch up. But I mean, to, you know, there's been a few moments. I think the first trip I took uh, when I got to CBU, our first road trip was at Texas, and then we flew to Berkeley and played Cal, and that was um, one week. And so, I mean, obviously a cool road trip to start, but just the whole flying experience. And I laugh about this now because when I was flying home for the holidays, actually, I saw Idaho State's basketball team in the airport. And naturally, the Idaho State guy, of course. I, I look across and I see Idaho State, and your eyes just kind of look at the basketball team. And, and that happens, I think, to a lot of people. So when you're in the travel party, you feel cool. You're walking through the airport, and everyone's like, oh, I don't know what CBU is, but there's the basketball team. So stuff right. like that, I don't know. It's just, it's just cool, and it's interesting. And um, yeah, I guess that would be the only time, and it's kind of odd because I'm basically still um, – there's still a couple guys on our team this year that are my age or a little bit older. So kind of a cool little caveat there, which is pretty rare as well. But I have to tell the guys on the team, I'm your age, so don't get all nervous with me. I'm just trying to do my job. And and I'm, you know, just trying to make you guys look good and sound good. So, And, and I think the guys really respond to that well because I'm not some, you know, older guy. I'm literally their age. And, and uh, so the bonding's been pretty well in that aspect as well. But, yeah, man, it's it's a dream come true for sure. And there definitely have been some pinch me moments, but I think more so than that, and I know I'm rambling here, but the coolest part has been there's been more moments that have just felt pretty normal. And I think that's because of what we did in college and, and what we still do in college um, as far as student radio and all the programs that, that the Cronkite School offers in, in particular, it doesn't feel that different. Um, especially this year when you're not sitting courtside. It feels just like Blaze Radio, honestly. It's literally the same thing. You're sitting up high in the concourse. You prepare. I'm sure the access is a little bit better. But, I mean, other than that, it's, it's basically the same thing. So more so than the pinch me moments, which there have been a few, and, and I just described them, I think the coolest thing has been that more often than not, it just, it just feels like what I've done for years. Yeah, I think one of the questions that I had written down was just – you, I mean, you, you touched on it. it you kind of got pushed back to the old days of being up high and being farther away from the surface. And, and maybe you didn't get too used to being courtside um, in the first year. But what is it like just 
take us inside the arena for people who, I mean, obviously most everyone listening to this has probably not attended a college basketball game this year. They've not been inside yeah. these quiet arenas where you can probably hear everything, but I know you're, you're talking to yourself um, most of the game. So maybe you don't hear these quiet conversations or everything that's going on on the court. Um, but what's it like inside? Yeah, it's weird, dude. I'm not going to lie. Um, so for me, it's a little different on home games, but I'll tell you like what the road experience was like at, at USC. Um, you have to fill out a health survey the morning of, and I know it'll be the same if you, if you end up covering games at ASU this year or, or any Pac-12 school. Um, you, you take a health survey the day before. You're not supposed to enter until an hour before tip-off. Um, so it's a tight window. You got to hurry and get in there. Um, it, it's different during the game as well. Uh, if you, like you mentioned, talking the whole game, you're not really thinking about what the atmosphere is or whatever, but there are still times to where, you know, if, if there's a break in the action or there's a timeout, I'll take my headset off or even just move an ear flap back for a second. And yeah, there's music playing, but there's nothing else going on. And if a coach is upset on the bench, you're still going to hear exactly what they're saying. Um, the fake crowd can only mask so much. So, I mean... I'm glad we're having a season and I, I don't want anything that I'm about to say, make it seem like I'm not thankful because I think we all are very thankful that the student athletes get a chance to play and um, that we get a chance to watch them, but it is just different, man. I mean, in a, in a Galen center, which is not known for having huge atmospheres when there's a big Evan Mobley dunk. Right. And there's no sound. It sucks. You know, it's different than watching on TV because if you're watching on TV, the crowd noise is louder because they got the fake crowd noise pumping in really aggressively. And the announcers are louder because they pump up their audio. But if you're in there in the arena and something crazy happens, it, it diminishes the impact, in my opinion. Um, like March Madness this year is going to be nuts. It's just going to be weird, I think. Um, when you get a 12-5 upset, the team will storm the floor, but you're not going to have those crowd shots of the alumni and stuff and their section going insane. I mean, think like UMBC when that happened and them showing their fan section, just going nuts and how cool that was. It would still be cool if something like happened, happened this year. It always is, but it'll just be different. And, and, you know, it's just the time we're in, but you do feel lucky to be there for sure. Um, and it's awesome to be there, but man, I can't wait until some people can come back. And in California, who knows when that'll be, but, Everywhere else, there are already some people going um, right now, but especially once you know next season rolls around, most likely, hopefully, um, we'll be able to put some people in the stands again, and it'll just be great again. Well, we, we've spoken now a little bit about a lot of the good things, and there are a lot of them. Um, with your experience so far with CBU, one of the downsides to this point caused by 2020 and all this COVID madness and college basketball and the world at large is the fact that you guys have been off now for three weeks in a COVID shutdown after a pretty calamitous day in Tucson, Arizona. Can you walk me through everything that's kind of gone on from that day and then there on fourth? Yeah. You want the full rundown? I'll try to make it quick. Um, so yeah, we were supposed to play. I'll pull up my calendar to get these days right. Cause it gets confusing to think of. Um, so we were supposed to play Arizona again, our, our second pact game, which was something we were all looking forward to in the program on the 16th of December. So the team flew out there the 15th and due to COVID, I don't fly with the team this year because I'm not tier one. Tier two, so I, I get tested um, a couple times a week instead of the um, testing they get um, multiple times a week. 
So I don't fly with the team and I stay in a separate hotel. So they flew out the day before the game. I flew out the morning of. So a 4 a.m. wake up call um, for me. Drive to LAX, got on a plane to Phoenix. God bless my boss because he gave me a, a flight from LA to Phoenix and then the quick little connection from Phoenix to Tucson, which I highly recommend that flight. It's about 15 minutes. Uh, so a flight to Tucson, landing at like 11.30. Game was supposed to be at 5 o'clock. So I landed 1130, settle in our hotel, whatever. And our, our team videographer also traveled with me because he was going to, you know, make a video for the game or whatever. And we we're the only two media people traveling um, with us. So settle in the hotel for a minute, take a little nap, eat lunch, whatever. We were supposed to leave at two o'clock to go over to McHale. And uh, no exaggeration here. I just gotten dressed. I literally am reaching for the door handle to walk to the lobby. And my boss calls me. Um, and I had just done a radio interview on the AM station in Tucson because they wanted to learn about CBU. They had no idea who we were. So I did this little interview and, and my boss listened. So I figured that's why he was calling me. And he calls me and he goes, you sounded good on the radio. And I said, thanks. And he goes, uh, I have bad news though. <laughs> Instantly. I mean, when you hear bad news in 2020 yeah. and, and there's a basketball, any sporting event, you know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, was like, I didn't think I swore or said anything, said anything bad. So I, I know what this is. Um, and he goes, game's canceled. Just like that, just all quiet. And I'm like, oh, my God. A lot of bad words are going through my head. <laughs> and he's like, I'm sorry. And I was like, who was it, them or us? And he goes, ah, I, I don't know. We're still learning stuff, whatever. But the statement's coming out soon. And I was like, okay, fine. So I go out into the lobby. Our videographer's waiting in the lobby with his gear. I walk out and he goes, let's go. And I literally look at him and I'm like, I just shake my head and I go, we're not going anywhere. Oh, <laughs> and he no. goes, he goes, you're kidding. And I go, no, I'm, I'm, i like, swear to you. I'm cause you guys know me. I'm pretty sarcastic. I was like, no, I, I'm dead serious. Like we're not going anywhere. So then we're sitting in lovely Tucson and it's two 30 in the afternoon. I'd woken up at 4 AM done a week's worth of preparation for nothing. So I uh, went back to my hotel room uh, took a nap and basically went to Tucson for a meal. Um, and the videographer went out to a nice dinner in Tucson that night and uh, flew home the next morning. And like you mentioned, we haven't played since. Um, the first positive test was was a false positive. So we had another game scheduled um, with Loyola Marymount uh, the next weekend. And then there was a positive test. So that's where we are now. And uh, I, I wish I could get into – full detail on the madness of scheduling. <laughs> I wish people did know the insanity that goes into it because I think we've played five games so far, but I think we've probably had 15, 16 people that we were either supposed to play or we're going to fill a game with or that didn't never even got announced. So no one would know. Um, and I'm sure every program that has been affected by scheduling, which is yeah, everyone. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane. Like the amount of different teams, especially as a broadcaster, it's difficult. And obviously for coaching staffs, cause they have to prepare, but it's like you hear you're going to play this team on this day or you hear it's in the works. So you have to start reading up on them then it gets canceled. Um, so it's tough, man. It's, it's really frustrating. And honestly, the Arizona one was the, it was frustrating because I traveled there. But other than that, it was like, well, at least I know another game's not going to be filled tomorrow. Because it's really frustrating when you prepare for one game, it gets canceled, and then they're like, well, we're going to play tomorrow against another team. You start preparing for them, and then that gets canceled too. That's when it gets really annoying. 
yeah. the first zone, it was like, well, I flew here for nothing and I'm in the worst town in the Pac-12, but whatever, you know, it's like, it could be worse, I guess. So <laughs> it is what it is, man. I, I don't know. It was, it was a good story, I guess. Have you still not been, to, because I know at Blaze, when you were still at ASU, that they wouldn't allow, I don't think, uh, broadcast at McHale. Have you still not been to McHale because of this? Uh, well, I went to McHale twice. I didn't okay. broadcast. I went to McHale my sophomore year. Um, the, the Jerry Blake's era at ASU. Um, the, the Maurice Spate era at ASU. Uh, Caleb Tarzuski destroyed ASU. We lost by 30. And then I was there my senior year when we won at McHale. But no, uh, didn't broadcast. So, yeah, that was going to be my first time broadcasting at McHale, which I was really excited about. But maybe it'll happen in another year now that didn't work out because of COVID this year, hopefully. So you obviously you don't get this shit. You don't get things don't go according to plan. You don't get to broadcast at Arizona things. Uh, Chicago state shuts down their program. So you don't get to go on the, the much, I know much beloved, much look forward to Chicago state trip. Um, you on a lighter note, you were, you were ranking road trips in the WAC last year. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. following along that on Twitter um, I'm curious, how do those rankings get impacted by the fact that maybe there aren't as many of them this year and by the fact that the road trips are back-to-backs this year and the, that the um, WAC is playing Friday, Saturdays on each one? Well, uh, first off, let me – you can play the taps over this. I am heartbroken. You should have seen my face when Chicago State announced they – I was so excited. Chicago State, bless their hearts – they, they've struggled for a while now, but my God, that's an awesome trip. I mean, it's a, it's a trip to Chicago. Based on the past, it's, it's resulted in wins. Um, so everyone's in a good mood. We stay in a really nice hotel downtown. I was so excited for that. So first off, awful um, that that happened. But the WAC is interesting. It's the most diverse geographic conference in the nation. Obviously, you go from Seattle to Chicago to McAllen, Texas, which is – right on the border of Mexico to LA and everything in between. Um, so it's insane. And then you have like big cities like Seattle, big city like Chicago, um, big city like Phoenix. And then you have Las Cruces, New Mexico, and you have St. George, Utah, where Dixie state is, mm-hmm. um, they're new in the conference. So it's really interesting. Um, to answer your question, power ranking wise, I still go Chicago one. So sad. Um, I love Phoenix. It's like going home for me. So that's always fun to do that. Seattle's right there. Seattle's cool to go to. Um, and then like from there, like UVU, Utah Valley is like really close to my hometown. So that's not a bad trip home. And then I don't want to be too mean, but we don't really love going to New Mexico state. Um, it's a tough trip. And same with the uh, UCRGV. That's not a fun trip either. Um, I'll tell you to go to those two because they were travel partners last year. So we flew from LA to El Paso and then, cause Las Cruces doesn't have an airport. So you fly to El Paso and then take an hour bus trip to Las Cruces. And then you play in Las Cruces. It was a bad game for us. We lost by a lot and then everyone's sad and you bus back to El Paso and then you fly to Houston then you fly from Houston to McAllen and then you play UTRGV and then you fly from Houston back to LA. So that is a lot. Um, and it's not easy travel, but 
wouldn't trade it for the world, I guess. Um, but yeah, the WAC's interesting. We're the only California school. Seattle's the only other school technically on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And then the expansion rumors is that they're going to add four more teams from Texas. So, yeah, I know. That's the confused look is what I had too. Yeehaw energy uh, to the Western Athletic Conference. So, I don't know, man. It's kind of wild. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it was fun to see all those campuses last year, and I'm excited to get back to uh, potentially seeing them in years to come. I will say that one more thing. Um, I actually have a feeling, and this is just my bold prediction, that you're going to see this coupling, maybe not back-to-back, but you're going to see in the future, mid-major conferences especially, turn their conference schedules into what we're seeing this year to where, let's say, uh, we play at Seattle this year. So we play two games, so it would be a Thursday and a Saturday. The amount of money you save on travel in doing that is immense. Like, for example, last year, a road trip was UVU and Seattle. So you have to fly from LA to Salt Lake City, get a bus there, get a hotel there for a few nights, play there, then fly from Salt Lake City to Seattle, get a bus there, get a hotel there, stay there, fly all the way back from Seattle to LA. Whereas if you play one opponent in a weekend, doesn't have to be back-to-back necessarily, you're saving so much in travel. So I have a feeling that uh, that might be a thing from now on in, in mid-major college basketball is coupling, especially for leagues that are a little more spread out um, because it, it really just makes a lot more sense financially. So last thing here, and I got to know, we're talking about the beautiful randomness that is the whack that is so incredible. There mm-hmm. is not a conference in the country with better names for schools than this one. <laughs> Which one's your favorite? Because oh, the, the Bacaros at – Rio Grande Valley, you've got the, the yeah. jackalopes, which are amazing as well, or yeah. the antelopes. I definitely said jackalopes, but antelopes. We, we can call them jackalopes. I'm fine with that. Yeah. They wouldn't be far off. It wouldn't be off-brand. We can call them jack, yeah, jack something, sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But tell me, tell me which one of these schools stands out. There's a correct answer, by the way. Well, in my opinion, saying UTRGV every single time someone has the ball is not easy. That's a long acronym, guys. I mean, let's shorten it up a little bit. Uh, Vaqueros is a fun mascot for me. I, so I don't know if that's really my favorite, but it's definitely the most unique in my eyes. Um, other than that, you have Aggies, Trailblazers, um, Lancers. You got the Lopes, sure. Yeah, I, I would say the Vaqueros. What's the right answer? Well, I guess they left the conference. Never mind. So I'm I'm out. Oh, the the ruse. Yeah, the ruse. Yeah, hey. they, but but they left. So I they, love they, me some. I love me some Kansas City basketball. Billy Donlin's going. Got it going on there, man. They got they got a, a beauty and also a whack team that left that had the blue floor and, and CSU Bakersfield. That just Roadrunners. So you had the Roadrunners and the Kangaroos going at it. That was awesome. We do miss Kansas City. That was a fun little trip that also made no sense. <laughs> but yes, they, they went to Summit. Um, that's it. Yeah, I which don't know. made a lot, which realistically made a lot more geographical sense. Um, totally, totally. And my biggest fear is the Chicago State leaves. I need one more trip to Chicago, guys. I need one more. Give me one more in a normal world. That's all I ask because there's no bigger difference than going from Las Cruces to Chicago. I need it. I hope by the spring of 2022 you have made one oh. trip to chicago yeah they just need a 
need to stay in a conference and I'm worried, but I, I'm not, I'm not hinting at anything. Cause I have no idea. I have no connections to <laughs> Chicago state, but um, yeah, man, it, that, it is a wild conference that really makes no sense whatsoever, but I'm just happy to have a job. <laughs> uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming on Braden. Thank you for enlightening us on Cal Baptist basketball. And we certainly hope um, that your season ends in Indianapolis. Uh, if we're talking about other geographical sites and, and oh. traveling situations for you. Oh Lord. Well, Hey, um, on, on behalf of all majors everywhere, go Zags. Um, they beat up on a whack school last night in Dixie state. I watched some of it. They are unreal. Um, I love watching them play and I have a feeling that they might challenge Indiana and their perfect record, uh, perfect season record this year. Oops. So goes tags. All right. Thanks, man. Once again, thank you to Braden Bell for coming on the show and enlightening us on Waction on Cal Baptist basketball and everything that there has been in this weird COVID year, uh, what it's been like for him and, and more. Um, I think if all goes according to plan. We may see him again in late February and we look forward to that. But with that being said, we are going to, uh, because the college football playoff is this Friday in two days, less, really less than two days as we're kind of winding down this late Wednesday evening. Peyton, you wanted to talk about, a, obviously, both of these semifinal matchups, even though one is a 20-point spread between Alabama and Notre Dame. And then uh, we wanted to cap things off with – we wanted to cap things off with a ranking of the top college football playoff performances ever. It was a list that you kind of dropped on me and said, let's, let's kind of create – let's create a top five, and we'll see where we differ and where we agree. Um, and that exercise – had me thinking a lot about the last six, seven years now of the, of the college football playoff era. So it was a good little recollection. Um, let's, let's talk about the college football playoff matchups first. Um, we'll talk about the one that is a 20 point spread, Alabama and Notre Dame. Do you think that there's any Avenue toward this game being competitive? And if so, what is it? Yeah, no, I do. I, I do. I don't think it will be a game played within a score. I think it will be something that is under 20. I'd probably bet the under there. But also, I do think Notre Dame has a chance to keep this thing a little bit close. I don't know if they've got the, five, the, the raw firepower to score with Alabama. And before the Heisman ceremony – happens I also will say that my Heisman Trophy pick at this point would not be one of the four guys that was a finalist it would be Najee Harris who was on track to be just as prolific as Derrick Henry was his Heisman season this year at Alabama in a normal year and I know we can do that whole thing about extrapolating extrapolating numbers to a normal 12 game season and that's not necessarily going to be accurate and I understand that as well but the reason this offense is so dynamic is not Devontae Smith. Not to say that Devontae Smith is not replaceable. I certainly think that Mac Jones is not replaceable, although there are a lot of talented quarterbacks in the country in this system playing with the guys he's playing with that could do, I think, what he's doing right now. All that is to say that without Najee Harris, what he brings in the – like, he's running receiver routes, and it's not like Christian McCaffrey doing it. It's like Derrick Henry doing it. Uh, he is just such a rare 
talent that I think when we talk about these two teams, it's one thing to stop one kind of game changer if you're Notre Dame. That is pretty good defense. Um, and I, I don't know if Clark Lee is going to coach this game. I know he accepted the Vanderbilt head coach position. He's their defensive coordinator. That's significant as well. But when you look at a Notre Dame defense that is pretty tough and physical up front, which is good. That's a, that's a plus for them. It's one thing to try and stop just Devontae Smith. It's another thing to have to constantly worry and allocate brain power pre-snap and during the play to two guys like that. And that's what Alabama has and Notre Dame doesn't. They just don't have the game-breaking guys that Bama has. That's not to say that, like I said, they can't win this game because I also will say that as odd as it is, and we talked a little bit about SEC, SEC, it just means more. Alabama is going to see the most physically imposing, nastiest football team that they've seen all year in this game. And I'm interested to see how they deal with that because Notre Dame wants to win at the line of scrimmage more than any team in the SEC right now, other than maybe Georgia. So here, here's the thing. I mean, if you just look at the most – and this is, this is – I typically would hold myself to a higher standard than looking at dumb basic stats like total yards and such. But I think that the way in which you accumulate your total yards tells a lot of the story, um, especially when you are a playoff team and you are a team like Notre Dame. Um, the fact is they both allow Alabama and Notre Dame, that is. Um, Notre Dame allows 18.6 points per game. Alabama allows 19.5. So you would think, you know, defensively they're on kind of the same tier. And, and based on pass yards allowed, rush yards allowed, they are. Offensively is the, the real gap in this game. And, and I think what Alabama's offense is going to do and the positions in which um, – maybe the game flow and the game situation is going to put Notre Dame in is probably not the most beneficial toward Ian book having success because Notre Dame averages nearly a hundred yards less of total offense, uh, total yards per game than Alabama does. So in general, their possessions take a little bit of longer time. They don't get as many possessions in the game and they don't, move the ball explosively through the air very often. Most of the time, it's a ground and pound attack. They average 217 yards rushing, 237 yards passing. That difference where is not nearly as extreme as Alabama, where Mac Jones is averaging 354 yards passing per game and, and just a tad under with that Najee Harris-led rushing attack, just a tad under 200 yards rushing. Mm -hmm. So if this is so balanced, if this is it, Notre Dame is, is, is so balanced, um, in terms of the way in which their yards come from. But when it is, if the yardage is, e is even, you're probably more run heavy than you are pass heavy. And that is the case with them. So what I'm worried about from a competitive balance standpoint, and we've seen this in years past, we've seen this the last time Notre Dame made the playoff, the first time they made the playoff, when they, sure. when they played Clemson. And it, it feels like that was yeah. – it feels like it was, that was ages ago, um, but right. that was. And, and this team, this team is better than that one. Yeah, right and, I and this, I feel like the Notre Dame team is significantly better than that that one. And I think we would feel that way, especially if. And I I don't think this is out of the realm of possibility, or would have been out of the realm of possibility because we will never know if Notre Dame plays its true schedule. If Notre Dame goes through, 
and plays all the non-conference programs and they don't they aren't a a pseudo ACC program this year and they play USC they play Stanford and and the likes of such I think that they still go 11 and 1 12 and 1 or they would only play 12 games because they wouldn't have gotten a conference championship game I think they still run through that schedule given this roster and how it would have stacked up against their original schedule and they're in a better place to compete in this game than the team two years ago would have been but with that being said I still worry about what will happen if Alabama gets up a touchdown early if Alabama gets up 10 points early and if we get into obvious passing downs for Notre Dame where their backs are against yeah, the wall, it's gonna be a problem. And it's the same situation as the ACC championship game where maybe they do move the ball on the ground a couple times. They gash Bama for a couple runs. It's not out of the realm of possibility. Teams like Ole Miss and Florida have been able to move the ball on them at times. They might do it a little differently, but if they don't take advantage of the opportunities, if they present themselves early, just like they did against Clemson, it could get ugly just like it did against Clemson. And that's kind of, what I'm leaning toward in, ter- in terms of the outcome from a pure prediction perspective. Um, and I hope it's not because I want competitive football games, but the reality of the situation is that this Alabama team is probably one of the five best teams of the playoff era. And we should wow. definitely expect them to win. I don't know if I'm willing to go there. I mean, when you look in Alabama, defensively they don't have the horses that that Clemson team had either defensively when I I just don't foresee them forcing unless their offense is just that overwhelming in this game Alabama's them overwhelming Notre Dame to the point where they have to throw the ball that much because Alabama's defense really I mean they're all special players it's Alabama they're they're pros everywhere but the only guy who's going to be a first round pick other than I mean maybe down the line like Will Anderson has had a pretty special season for them as a linebacker. So in a couple of years, he's a true freshman in a couple of years, maybe, but Patrick Sertain is the only dude who's really saying that guy's Sunday um, on this team right now, I guess Christian Barmore has been pretty good for them in, in spurts, but it's not been dominant. It's not been Quentin Williams or um, Jonathan Allen level production for them inside. Same thing with LeBron Ray, who's had a little bit, I think of a, disappointing season for them this Alabama defense is not what Alabama defenses have been and I think Notre Dame's offense they're going to be able to run the ball with Jafar Armstrong and I think Ian Book is going to have play action available to him and by the way Ian Book is one of those guys that is just going to find a way to make plays happen that's kind of what he's been this year as a scrambler kind of in that I mean it's maybe a, a, a lazy comparison but kind of in that Joe Montana mold of Notre Dame quarterbacks of old just running around and making stuff happen and I I think that's going to cause some problems for Alabama that's why I think it'll stay close I think Notre Dame will probably win the line of scrimmage at least on the offensive side of the ball Um, I just don't think they're going to have enough offense to keep up with Alabama and that's why I'm at I don't think this is going to be the skull crushing that I think a lot of people expect it may end up a 20 point line, but Notre Dame's going to get their points. I'm pretty confident in that. I mean, it would surprise me. It wouldn't shock me. It would surprise me though. If Notre Dame is unable to take advantage of the situations of advantageous situations, like they did multiple times going into the red zone against Clemson and 
I had come around on Ian Book. I had been very down on him before this season. I had been down on him early on, and I discredited Notre Dame before they played Clemson the first time. And then in the second time, he did exactly what I thought he would have done the first time around, where he just missed guys frequently. He missed open guys. He didn't make the, the best throws. And I would be surprised if that repeats itself, given what he showed all year long, but I wouldn't be shocked. And so I'm not going to roll up. I'm not going to count on it, but I, I think that Notre Dame is going to like, if I don't know what their over under is for the team total, but I would guess that Notre Dame scores 20 points in this game. At least it's not going to be the same. I, I, I go back and forth with Notre Dame beating Clemson the first time um, because yes, of course, DJ Uyangalele was the quarterback, right? And in that matters, Trevor Lawrence is Trevor Lawrence and DJ is really good, but he's not Trevor Lawrence. He doesn't have that command that Trevor Lawrence has. Um, and, and really, I think the, raising effect that he has on his teammates because of the comfort level that he brings as a guy who's gone, what, 96 and three now since he took over as a starter in high school. Like he just is a winner and that has to do something for a team. But aside from that, because of how Clemson performed offensively, I don't think you can really invalidate the win from Notre Dame. Where I do think you can is the fact that James Skalski, who's the leader of this defense, the starting middle linebacker for Clemson, didn't play. And yes, Brian Breeze was the number one overall recruit in the nation who started in his place that game. Sure, but it's not the same. And Clemson's defense lacked an edge that they found throughout the back end of their schedule in that game that they showed off against Notre Dame the last time they played. And I, I think Notre Dame's offense kind of got their bell rung in that game. I'm interested to see how they respond. I just think, again, if they're able to avoid turnovers and three and outs, they're going to score points. They're not going to score as many points as Alabama, but they're going to score points. And I don't think they'll just get blown out the way that Vegas seems to think they will because, you know, Eddie Lacy had a couple spin moves um, a couple years ago. I, I just don't see it playing out like that. Yeah, it, it would take a miracle for this game to be less competitive than the 2012 National Championship game was. Like that, yeah. that, that 2012 Notre Dame team had just about everything, every break go right for them um, during that whole entire regular season the Manti Teo storyline was out of control at that point with just how it seemed like he, even though it wasn't, even though it realistically it did not happen, it felt like he had an interception in every single game and a huge game. Huge right. game. He should have won the Heisman. He should have won the Heisman that year, in my opinion, over Manziel. People in this part of the country thought it should have gone to Colin Klein, but you know. <sighs> <laughs> that's, a, that's another story for another day. Okay. Um, but yeah, it, it, this this Notre Dame team is leaps and bounds better than that 2012 team, and it's probably leaps and bounds better than the 2018 team in terms of being fitted to compete at this level against elite talent. Um, and still, the gap. We may be talking next week about how wide the gap is, and likely be previewing another Alabama Clemson national championship game for the third time. Um, but we'll have to see how it goes. Clemson and Ohio state. Um, that's the, the lean that I'm going toward is I think Clemson, everybody seems like they are. Are you 
let's talk about Ohio State first. Are you surprised by what they showed against Northwestern in the Big Ten championship game? And or are you concerned about what a lot of people are talking about with Justin Fields, where it seems like they went from, oh, he's for sure going to go second in the draft and be the first guy taken after Trevor Lawrence to, wow, that guy takes a little bit of time to make his decisions. And that can be something that's A, exploited in the college football playoff and B, then exploited at the next level. Well, I think a lot of it will depend on what's going on with Chris Olave and all the other guys that missed the, the, the reason that, and no disrespect to Northwestern, but the reason the game was close was because Ohio state was missing 20 some odd guys. I think it was 22 and was without Chris Olave who really opens things up for Garrett Wilson, um, freeing him up from double teams. And I know they have a really ridiculous set of freshman receivers, but it's not the same as Chris Olave, who is Justin Fields' guy, one of the most accomplished receivers, not only in the Big Ten, but in the nation. He may be eligible to play in this game. He may not. I don't know what the update has been. Also, just backtracking, one other note of importance from the Alabama-Notre Dame game that I meant to get to and forgot to, Landon Dickerson, who, for my money, has been the best offensive lineman in the country, got injured in the SEC title, will not be playing in this game. It'll be interesting to see if that affects things. And there's also some murmurings that Jalen Waddle could play, which is incredible. I don't know if it'll happen. I don't suspect it'll happen. But, I mean, he's walking around and people are talking about it. So, I mean, not if it's not in this game, maybe the national title. But The Dickerson thing we, it is interesting because we have no clue how much it will hurt them because right. they had, what, maybe six plays without him? Right, and, and he's the starting center, too, which is – I mean, it, it's different from a communication because usually every offensive line is unique, but with his role on this offensive line, he's making all the calls, getting all the double teams and everything initiated at the line of scrimmage, identifying pressures and helping Mac Jones to do that in that aspect of the pre-snap look, and that's going to be important. He's also just nasty as hell, and they're going to miss that. I mean, this, this offensive line's loaded. Um, I think it's what sets this offense apart historically in Alabama. You look at the best offenses, and I don't know how we got back to talking about Alabama, but <laughs> the best offenses under Nick Saban, and it's the elite offensive lines with Ryan Kelly, um, with Barrett Jones, however many years ago, and they hadn't had that for a while. That's what this group is. With Alex Leatherwood um, and Dickerson both making first-team All-American in the AP. Um, Neil and some of the other guys they have up front. Alabama's got a really good group there but they'll be fine. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that affects things. Going back to this Clemson-Ohio State game, I think this is going to be a blowout. I think Clemson's going to win by double digits. Um, Ohio State just at no point this year looked like the team that they were supposed to after they played Indiana, at least to me, and I know they've been through a lot, but the defense isn't dominant. They miss Chase Young. It's not the same group from a year ago. That Trevor Lawrence, by the way, still didn't really have a ton of problems with. Maybe if Okuda's phantom fumble is actually a fumble, we have a different story. But it yeah, wasn't. Fumble. So, but it wasn't, though. It, it was not called that way. Um, and Clemson won because Trevor Lawrence went off against this far superior defense. And this offense is supposed to pick up the slack, but – under pressure, Justin Fields has just made some inexcusable decisions this year. And this offensive line's regressed a little bit. 
And I, I think Clemson, Venables, this is what he's good at. He dials up unique blitz looks, and he does all kinds of things to keep a, a quarterback off balance. Um, you know, Justin Fields said he has studied more for this game than he has ever before. And I, I almost don't like that because so much of being an elite quarterback, having confidence and making some decisions on instincts, there is such a thing for a game like this, especially with Fields wanting something to prove because he says it himself. He's a, he didn't play well against Clemson and left some plays on the field, and that's the reason they lost. And it's true. I feel like he's going to press a little bit too much to try and prove something against a presumed number one overall pick. I think he's going to struggle a little bit, have a couple costly mistakes, and I think Clemson's going to run away with this game. So you do you think this is less competitive than Bama Notre Dame? Yes, significantly. I think this is a double-digit game. Wow. Okay, because I came away from last year's game, and I know that this is completely different year. It's a completely it's largely different teams. Um, things have changed. I've, the big names are mostly the same, but I came away from last year's game thinking Ohio State wins that game if J.K. Dobbins doesn't mess up his ankle. Um, I agree with that. And, and I think, yeah, I, I think you agreed with that too. And maybe Ohio State would have been a better suited matchup to play LSU in the national championship game. Obviously that doesn't matter, but when it comes to this, you, it seems like are leaning that it's going to go more toward the, the first matchup between these two programs in a semifinal where it was 31 to nothing and less like last year's where it was a one score game and Ohio state was driving and Justin Fields made a crucial mistake. Um, whether it was the receiver's fault or his fault, uh, throwing a pick at the end of the game. If, and I right. think, I think that if um, what I was going to say is if you believe that Ohio state has kind of turned a corner and that the 300 plus yard performance in the big 10 championship game from Trey Sermon is the real deal. He's pretty much the X factor in this game because if Ohio state, which has had a lot of struggles with their O-line because of COVID protocols and not having guys and really the only time they didn't show it in the last two games, I've obviously Northwestern's a better defense than Michigan state when they played Michigan State, it didn't look like it was backups and such. But against Northwestern, it didn't look necessarily as as good in pla- in pass blocking. So if if run blocking can be good and Trey Sermon can repeat where he had half of his y- rushing yardage in one game this year uh, of 675 yards, I think he had 332 against Northwestern. Um, that could be the thing that keeps this game close. Otherwise, they're going to need Justin Fields to have a miraculous performance, both throwing the ball and running the ball, um, if Sermon isn't able to take some of the load off. Do you think that Trey Sermon's going to be able to, I mean, obviously not run for 300 yards, but can he have a Ezekiel Elliott-type role where he just blows up in the Big Ten championship game and then blows up in the playoffs? I mean, somebody's going to have to step up somewhere, whether, I mean, if the lava is available, I think I got to reassess stuff, but I'm not sure he will be. I think everything's kind of relative right now. With that said, I I actually don't think it's going to be Sermon that's going to be the the thing breaker. I think it'll be Wilson, who I I do believe has been Ohio State's best offensive player this year. Um, I'm a big fan of Garrett Wilson. He had a really good game against Clemson last year. 
And the secondary has been vulnerable at points to big rec- – I mean, Wilson's not the biggest guy. He plays big, though, and is especially good over the middle. I think they could hit them there, try and throw the ball over the head of the pressure a little bit. But Clemson, if you don't out-physical them at the, front of the, ta- uh, at the point of attack uh, with their fronts, Clemson's linebackers are so aggressive – and get down hill so fast that I just don't think Ohio State has seen something like that this year. So that's why I think they'll probably struggle to get the ground game going a little bit. But Trey Sermon's also always been a really talented player ever since he played a lot in the college football playoff for Oklahoma. I mean, like this guy has had this talent for a couple years, so maybe he gets going. That is the answer. I just don't I don't know if it will be. I think it'll be Garrett Wilson. That keeps him in the game if they stay close. Him and Chris Olave, if Olave is available. What do you think? Um, because Olave may play. It seems like he likely will because the, the Big Ten, in its constant uh, changing the rules to benefit Ohio State, which no one's going to blame them because it obviously brings the conference more money. Um, and that is completely and utterly exactly what this decision has been about this entire season has been about is getting the big 10 more money and getting Ohio state up into the college football playoff discussion. And and if they lose this game, it's still a success because the conference comes away with a huge bag of cash, which can be distributed to all the schools. Do you think that Olave and them, if, if that is, if they are, if he's available, if other receivers are available, um, that that, evens anything yeah i do i adds an entirely new dimension to this offense that makes them because olave has played in this kind of game significantly more dangerous because you can't really devote extra attention to any of their guys on the perimeter at that point and i i just think that having a guy like olave who has been justin field's favorite target over the last two years that is a big deal in a game like this. And you need individual guys who are going to go up and make plays. And I also look across the other side and see Clemson for the first time in forever without a real marquee receiver. I know Mari Rogers is close to a thousand yards and he's good. He's a really good player, but he's not Mike Williams. He's not going to go outside the numbers on fourth and seven and go make a crucial catch on a jump ball. Right. That's just not his game. And they don't really have that guy. I mean, it was Sammy Watkins and DeAndre Hopkins, and then it was, you know, Mike Williams and a couple other guys over the course of the last decade. And Cornell Powell has had a really strong year for them, but he's not that kind of guy either. He's kind of a a burner on the outside. Um, He's not that jump ball guy. So I looked at Galloway, their tight end, to try and make some plays for him, get him involved in the screen game. But that's an interesting area for Clemson. And, I'm interested to see how it plays out. They don't have that stud receiver. They're kind of like the uh, Saints in the NFL this year, where a lot of the offense, because Mike, or rather um, Michael Thomas has been out, a lot of the offense is running through their do-it-all stud running back. And Travis Etienne, I hope, has a huge game because he deserves so much more shine for his career than he's gotten. And it would be really appropriate for him to go out here in these last couple of games at Clemson and just show out because he's the all-time yards leader in ACC history. And I don't feel like people care enough about that. Yeah. And I think that this could be a situation where he takes some real advantage of, of the last 
two games of his college football career because I think we're we're both going to say that Clemson's going to win this game, um, and maybe vaults himself into the clear second running back behind Najee in terms of the NFL draft this year. Um, do you want to do score predictions and do you want to predict the national championship yet, or maybe just pick the quote unquote three games now, or do you want to just pick the playoff? Let's just let's pick the scores for these semifinals games and uh, leave some to the imagination for later podcasts. Okay, what are you taking in Bama and Notre Dame? Uh, let me go Bama 48-28. So they just cover. That would be a push. That would be a push. You yeah. are correct, sir. It is 20. Um, I will say – Bama, I'm going to say Bama 45, Notre Dame 21. What? Okay. You said, you said large spread, large margin of victory for Clemson over OSU. What will that margin of victory be? If Olave plays, I'm going to go 35-27. I would assume that he does. If he plays 35-27, Clemson. If he does not, I'm going to go just because of game flow. I'm going to give Clemson a, a couple more points because I feel like Ohio State will be chasing and pressing a little bit harder. So I, I'm going to go 42-24, to 24, Clemson. I mean, this my final games are not close. We've learned this. Yeah. There have been like two close semis in the history of the college football playoff. I'm going to go 38-27 Clemson. So I think Clemson covers their seven-and-a-half-point favorites, and that would be a point-and-a-half under the total of 66-and-a-half. Okay. So I guess I use those numbers as slight barometers of where I think things are going to go. But I I hope – that Ohio State and Notre Dame give us competitive games, but in my heart of hearts, I know that Alabama and Clemson would be the most entertaining and most competitive national championship game possible. Uh, I, I just want to see Trevor Lawrence get another chance to add something to his legacy, right? Like, it feels like it'd be wrong for it to end any other way. It, it would be quite a story if Trevor Lawrence is – three years in college are three national championship games, a win over Tua and the Tide, a win over Mac Jones and probably Heisman Trophy winning Devontae Smith and the Tide. And then sandwiched in there is a loss to Joe Burrow during the greatest single season we've ever seen from a college football quarterback. That would be quite a story for him and and I think it's probably the one you're rooting for because you were as high on him as on on Trevor Lawrence um during during last year's national championship game and just raving about the future of both he and Burrow now that we know we'll they'll probably both likely end up in the AFC and we could see them in the college or in the um NFL dueling in, in the playoffs in the same conference for years to come, which would be interesting to see and, and would be fun as well. So there are our – sorry. I was just going to say battling it out for the right to lose to Patrick Mahomes, incredible. 
that of which we can both agree. Um, those are our college football playoff previews. Those are our predictions. Let's talk college football playoff top performances ever. We're, we both have lists of our top fives. Do you want to go five to one in getting more dramatic or one to five? Let's go five to one. Okay. I'll let you start. This was your your idea. Your uh, You'll be the one that starts. So I cheated here a little bit. I'm not going to lie. My number one is a combo just so I could squeeze these five in. Okay. And uh, I probably should give more shine to the performance that was put on by Ezekiel Elliott the first year of the playoff with Ohio State. Um, didn't put it on this list. Maybe it deserves to be there. Maybe not. Um, but the way they dominated games, and he was a large part of that, yes. But I, I kind of was looking for either you did something unbelievable, and that's why I had Justin Jefferson at five um, with his performance against Oklahoma, the four touchdowns. That's ridiculous and significantly harder to do as a receiver than it is as a running back. That's the reason I put him at five, even though he wasn't as direct a contributor to them winning a national championship as Elliot was in his two-game run with Ohio State the first year of the playoff. That's why I had Jefferson there at five with his four touchdowns, 10 catches, over 200 yards against Oklahoma a year ago. That's why I had him there over Ezekiel Elliott. Okay. I will just say now I did not have Justin Jefferson on the list. I ended up at the last moment taking him out of my five spot and instead slid in the guy we just talked about trevor lawrence uh i think that the 2019 national championship game in which a lot of the country who may or may not have watched a ton of clemson that year i guess everyone knew that trevor lawrence was kind of the guy the next guy i don't think that people realized that he was the now guy and that he was probably and would be the eventual number one pick like automatically and every and the day after everyone was all aboard the he could be drafted number one overall right now train and that probably was correct then um and is even more correct now he was 20 of 32 347 yards passing three touchdowns and i think that entire year we kind of just assumed that tua was gonna work his way to a national championship really easily and that game was not really close. And for a lot of it, it was just because every time it seemed like there was a third down, Trevor Lawrence made the play. Every time that they needed another big throw, Trevor Lawrence completed the passes. And the quarterback rating, I know that's a flawed stat, was super high for him that night. And it just seemed like he was up to the moment in a situation where most freshmen um, don't always come to the to the stage and, and make – such plays. Yeah, so we've had our first discrepancy because I also have Trevor Lawrence on my list, but he's not number four. He's not number five. Um, number four is Tua Tagovailoa, the guy that he beat in 2019. I have Tua, his performance in 2018, beating Georgia in overtime, coming in off the bench in the second half. Um, this is going to kind of define the trend over the back end of my list, and I, my number three actually defies this trend, but here at number four, I'm kind of trying to set up 
more than stats, more than pure statistical overwhelming dominance, what did you do to create a moment that mattered in the context of college football and in the context of your winning your team winning a national title? And, and what Tua did is just so impossible. It's so cinematic. It's straight out of a movie. And what happened should not have happened. Um, them running Seattle and getting Devontae Smith wide open on that coverage bust, that play itself – I mean, it's not the most difficult. It's actually, it was a layup, to be completely honest. I mean, Tua had to see it after just getting sacked, sure. But that's the other thing. In that game, he was sacked so many times, and Georgia just kept on coming. And he just, as a freshman, just kept on getting back up and making plays in a national championship. Ridiculous. That's why I put him here. That's interesting. I, I gave thought to it, and from a pure from a statistical perspective, it wasn't the most impressive thing, but from a pure accomplishment perspective and from a um, what you were you expected to do versus what did you deliver, he overwhelmingly succeeded in that category. In the same season, not necessarily – yeah, in the same season, but not in that same game, I'm going to go with Sony Michelle in his Rose Bowl semifinal performance – against Oklahoma in 2018, first day of the year. You were talking about just pure impact. Every single time he touched the ball, it seemed like it was a big play in that game. And I know that the final score ended up being super high. It was super high scoring, and and that was a game that the ball was moving across the field all the time. And so you might say, oh, it wasn't necessarily that hard to do. But 181 yards on 11 carries that's 16 and a half yards per attempt he had three touchdowns including the game winning touchdown against uh against Oklahoma and he also had four receptions for 41 yards so he was doing both you you would propose to me maybe you add Nick Chubb in there because it was kind of a duo and I think yeah. that this is the beauty of college football is I easily could have added Nick Chubb in. And a lot of the times these two headed hor- uh, horses of running backs can kind of go your turn, my turn, and it works. Um, but I think that Michelle, he's the guy, like, I don't, I could rack my brain for a while and maybe not remember or maybe remember uh, Nick Chubb runs from that game, but I can specifically remember multiple Sony Michelle runs in that game and, and multiple moments in which uncharacteristically based on his NFL career. Now he was just running away from defenders and making huge plays for Georgia. Yeah. He was incredible in that game. And I mean, yeah, like you said, he had the dogs barking to the championship run and, and that it's just like, I mean, it's the two of play. I mean, it, Sticks out in your mind because it was a play in which it became apparent that he was going to score and end the game before he did, which makes it even cooler somehow. I can't explain exactly how, but it does. Um, so, yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. And it was at number three now. Pardon me? And it was just in the Rose Bowl, and that setting yeah. was magnified. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here is my number three. I went with Deshaun Watson in 2015, not 16, which completely bucks the trend. And now I'm just playing to my own sentimentality. But I just wanted – that game was insane. That game was incredible and was, to me, a better national championship than the OT national championship that happened. Um, 
that game was so – them in Alabama, Clemson in Alabama, Deshaun Watson's sophomore year, this is where he kind of came of age. 405 passing yards, four touchdowns, 20 rushing attempts for 73 yards. He was just so, so freaking good in this game that made – him playing at that level made Nick Saban do things that I've ne- never seen Nick Saban do before. The surprise onside kick, which was a masterstroke hindsight, if that doesn't get recovered – that defines Saban's legacy in a completely different light, but I, I digress from that. Deshaun Watson was just so unbelievably good in that game and put up the best performance I've seen from a quarterback on a losing team in a national championship that I can remember. So I, I just wanted to show him some love. Maybe three is a little bit too high. You probably could make a very reasonable argument that the you know he threw the game winning touchdown and they won the national title against Alabama it might be better at number three, but that's just not what I did. Which is funny because that is what I did, and here's the argument I would make. I would say because my number three is the thirty six of fifty six, four twenty yards, three touchdowns, and a touchdown run in a game that he beat Alabama. He wins the national championship game, and. I read off the stats, and that's super impressive. But you know what the most impressive part about it is, in my opinion, is that it comes as the second time he faced Nick Saban. And we saw kind of the book be written by Nick Saban on you kind of get sliced and diced by somebody, mobile quarterbacks. Uh, I can remember the the first matchup between Johnny Manziel and them and A&M and Alabama, and then the hype surrounding it the second time. And Saban was kind of prepared for it. And he gave Manziel troubles in the second game. And I know that Deshaun Watson is a significantly better player than Johnny Manziel was uh, and ended up being a better player and is a better player at the next level. But situations like that where Saban sees a guy a second time and kind of figures things out, makes it all the more impressive to me that Deshaun Watson was able to come back the second time and do almost the same thing, didn't throw an interception in the second time and threw the clutch game-winning touchdown to Hunter Renfro and just overwhelmingly erased what would have been and probably would have put Jalen Hurts, that touchdown drive that he led um, as a true freshman at the end of that mm-hmm. game just kind of erased that from people's memory because of what he did driving Clemson down and scoring at sure. the at the very end. Sure. No, that's it. I mean, you make great points. He was incredible in both games. Um, Mike Williams in that game probably deserves an honorable mention because he was ridiculous with the difficulty of the catches. Especially he was getting banged up and just kept getting up and getting up and making plays. And he was incredible that game. Um, but I'm going to stick with the Clemson trends. This is actually where I have Trevor Lawrence's performance in 2019 against Alabama because we I, – and I, I presume that Joe Burrow is going to be – he might be your one and two. He's going to be my number one. But what Trevor did, the difficulty level of the throws he made was just on a different planet than what Burrow was asked to do because with the guys – that Burrow had. Guys were just getting wide open all over the place. That offense was unstoppable for a lot of reasons. And yeah, he made high difficulty level throws. It was the engine of them being so unstoppable. But the reason Lawrence, I think, is right there is if you go back and rewatch that game, that's the best game of Trevor Lawrence's career. 
in the national championship as a true freshman against a defense with how many NFL players? It was just so unreal to watch him do what he was doing and get off, like get the offense to continue drives, like you said, on third down. Like freshmen don't do that. And that that was, I think, when you go back and look at Trevor Lawrence's career and the legend of his career, and if he wins this national championship in Heisman, you can make the argument he had the best college career of any player ever. It started in that game. The legend was born that game, so that's why it's number two. I would say the legend was born in that Texas A&M game on the road. Do you agree? Yeah, but I I don't feel like that's going to be the moment that sticks in people's minds as much, you know? Yeah, and that and that A and M game came down to Clemson's defense getting a stop, and that kind of sealed it. So I can see that, um, and rightfully so, to my opinion. I mean, I definitely would say that was the wake up call for me. With Lawrence was the national championship game, and him kind of putting Alabama in its place uh, for a night out in Santa Clara. My number two is going to be Ezekiel Elliott and his performance in the first ever college football playoff, um, the Sugar Bowl against Alabama. And I just grouped it together. I said both games. I don't even care. Um, both the Sugar Bowl and the national championship. Against Alabama, he goes for 20 carries, 230 yards, two touchdowns. He had the 85-yard touchdown game, uh, touchdown run where you see that, that – camera angle from the end zone where he's looking up at the video board making sure no one's going to catch him and no one ever did and then he goes against Oregon and not necessarily as great of a yards per carry situation uh, but a game where he grinds it out against a great Oregon defensive line 36 carries which is just absurd um, to think that they went 36 carries in a national championship game and then came back a year later and we're scared to feed Ezekiel Elliott against Michigan State in a game that probably cost them a spot in that college football playoff. 246 yards, four touchdowns, uh, once again, against a pretty stout Oregon defensive line that, that had its way in the semifinals against Florida State. Um, and that is my overwhelming memory is I remember the Cardell Jones story. I remember, remember certain throws that Cardell Jones made certain plays that Ohio state had like the, the trick pass to Michael Thomas um, against Alabama. But what really sticks with me in terms of my first college football playoff memory is Ezekiel Elliott, just dominating. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. Uh, Michael Thomas was like kind of the third most important guy in that offense, which between like Devin Smith and, uh, obviously, Ezekiel Elliott. No, I, Zeke. Uh, Zeke felled Alabama when they were unbeatable at that point. Like uh, they had been on a serious run, and people just thought that would continue into the college football playoff. And Ohio State snuck in and beat the Giants. And then you talk about that stout uh, defensive line for Oregon, and people will be like, "Oh, Mark Helfridge, stout defensive line, Oregon, no way." No, like that defensive line produced two future Pro Bowl guys, and Eric Armstead is a dude who, I mean, he's got a little bit of all-pro upside, and DeForest Buckner's already there. Like, DeForest Buckner is probably the second or third best defensive lineman in the NFL right now. And And the fact that they did that to that Oregon D-line, 
if you go back and watch what that Oregon defensive line did to Florida State in the game prior, and then they just turned around and did that, no, it, it was unbelievable to watch Seekron. I'm going to do the exact same thing you did in combo games. Uh, I'm just going to combine Joe Burrow against Oklahoma and against Clemson into one because he put up 14 touchdowns and that shouldn't be allowed, and I don't think I need to say anything else. Is that that's your number one? Yeah, of course. I, I, it just is just too much. Like statistically, it's impossible to say anything else. That's my thing too. Is is I I I remember texting you um, as the OU game was unfolding. I think it was early in the first quarter where he was racking up touchdowns at such a quick pace, and I know that all of them, or basically all of them, it felt like we're going to Justin Jefferson, and you had Justin Jefferson on the list, and I omitted him. But at some point I said during the OU game, like 60 passing touchdowns is a real possibility based on this game and based yeah, on, you did. on the Clemson game. And then the night of the Clemson game, I remember us just rooting for the, for the 60th passing touchdown. And when Wheel Burrow, the nickname that you gave him, came out and Burrow ran for 58 yards and a touchdown against uh, – Clemson in the national championship game I was like why are you scoring a rushing touchdown you've you've got this passing you you get to 60 passing touchdowns I know we're, we're stat padding in the national championship game but that's how freaking good Joe Burrow was um and the fact that it like Ezekiel Elliott that kind of it, it didn't necessarily come out of nowhere because everybody knew how good he was but right. two of his three and all three of his 200 plus rushing yard games during that sophomore season came in those last three games of the year. So you could say it was kind of out of nowhere. This was just Joe Burrow continuing the greatest season ever. 5,600 yards passing plus 60 passing touchdowns. He had multiple rushing touchdowns. Uh, and it was just incredible. Every He had – people thought that Clemson kind of figured it out because I think that they stopped LSU on the first drive or two. Um, but from there on out, it was like Joe Burrow had every answer for the Scantron test. Yeah, no, they just overran people all year long. And it, uh, to do that to Trevor Lawrence, that, again, should be impossible. That shouldn't be – it was just they, – they, they were perfect. They, they were perfect, that LSU team was, and he was the reason. Um, and, I mean, that's going to go down. I do not see any way in my lifetime where I can – sit back and watch a team and think that they were better than that LSU team. I just don't think it's going to happen. So, and, and Joe, that's, he's a reason. And this is kind of a lifetime achievement award for him. Oh, by the way, also, yeah, in two games of the most highest significance, he put up 14 passing touchdowns just because. Yeah, or 14. It was 14 total. It was 12 passing. 14 total. 14 total. Sorry, he had the one rushing. Like you said, the one rushing touchdown. Um, yeah, just absolutely remarkable. Um, I do think even though there's a, a lot has been made and rightfully so about the lack of competitiveness in the college football playoff um, and, and things could be done to fix such things. I, on just a small note, based on what we saw tonight in the Cotton Bowl, if Florida's guys opting out of that game really drastically changed the competitive balance of that game and probably the outcome of such um, and probably changed the amount of money in which Kyle Trask will end up making because he was out there without his four top leading, leading receivers. I think guys opting out of New Year's Six Bowls is further evidence 
um, and further reasoning and, and will be used by bowl uh, commissioners and college football commissioners from different conferences and coaches that that's more evidence of why they would want the college football playoff to expand so that there's more reason for those guys to play. Mm. Mm. That's a good point. That's just a thought based on tonight. Um, all right, let's go to, to round out the show. We've got a new segment, which we're going to do week on our weeknight edition of Heat Check, and then we'll have our weekend recap edition every week um, for two pods. But the, the weeknights, we want to do this on a weekly basis, check in with you, Peyton, and go over your National Player of the Year power rankings, uh, a top four, kind of Final Four-esque. Um, and based on this, this is the third installment of it this year, first time that we've unveiled it on the pod. Um, you've had plenty of changes throughout the year. So give us what your new changes are. I'm going to run through it quickly. Top four guys. Boom. Corey Kispert, best player right now statistically. You could argue realistically he is the best player on this team. I don't know. Honestly, I think you could make a case somehow for all three of Gonzaga's best guys at number one on this list. Only one of the guys made the list. That's Kispert. He's number one, leading the charge statistically, made a massive jump this year, averaging over 20 points per game. Marcus Carr, number two, the Booth Mobile. Dude has been insane. Top 10 in the nation in scoring. Minnesota is doing things that would be becoming of a team that would be in the top four seeds. And he's the reason. He is the sole reason that that is happening. He has been unbelievable. So you may say that's ridiculous that he's number two, but right now at this point in the year, he has probably been the second most deserving of this award, in my opinion. Number three, the guy that he beat the other night in overtime, Luca Garza, who is the national leader in points per game at 27. A lot of that's inflated. He's cooled off a little bit, only scored 18 in the team's win over Northwestern. Maybe actually scored a little bit less than that now that I'm trying to remember it in my head, but he's also scoring 27 points per game and was a presumptive preseason favorite and has been incredible. So yeah, he's going to make the list as much as I don't like him as a defensive player because he might be the worst defensive player in all of college basketball. Not impossible. Last but not least, the guy that I picked to win and James Booknight, making me proud. UConn's very own had another 20 points tonight against DePaul is top 10 again in the nation, scoring at 24 points per game. And, I mean, this one is just a little bit of me being sentimental. Um, there are a lot of deserving candidates. It's the fourth spot. But he has been that good. He dropped 40 in a team's loss against Creighton. 40, again, 40 in a college game. That's ludicrous. He has been as good as advertised, better than I could have even hoped for. All right, Gabe. Poke some holes. Okay, so I'm not going to poke any holes with Corey Kispert. I've te I, I texted you last week. We talked about this earlier this uh, on our last episode uh, about how you thought that my opinion would change um, on Corey Kispert. Dixie State and, and Northern Arizona did nothing to change that opinion. I think that he is Kyle Korver uh, 2.0. I think that if Gonzaga – wasn't located on the West Coast, they would be a great candidate to join the Big East. And this would be kind of a Kyle Orver, Kyle Corver type situation. 
um, where we look back in a couple years in a time down the road where if Gonzaga has joined a bigger conference, maybe that's just the Mountain West, maybe, because um, the Pac-12 is never granting them just uh, basketball-only membership. But maybe we look back and, and this Gonzaga team is the last one or, or one of the last ones before they, they make a jump from where Creighton went from Missouri Valley to Big East. Maybe they go West Coast Conference to the Mountain West um, and get a higher level of competition. I just wonder if Corey Kispert is good enough for the Jalen Brunson treatment where people understand um, that this is a 2018 Villanova type situation with Gonzaga and that Jalen Suggs, he's probably better than Macau Bridges in terms of NBA prospects, even though Bridges is a really good NBA player. Um, but you could say that Bridges was that was the most talented player on that Nova team and Brunson was the most productive college basketball player. And that's a situation where I think we're approaching with this Gonzaga team. And Timmy kind of factors into that conversation too. It's, it's just such an overwhelming thing. Marcus Carr over Luca Garza feels like it's because Carr beat Garza. And I'm perfectly yes. okay with that. Perfectly okay with that. Um, and then Luca at three feels right. He's going to keep himself in the conversation all year long and just hope that other people kind of fade from it. Yeah. But it's such a hard thing for him to win because he came in second last year and it feels like he's, even if he is actually realistically, statistically surpassing the bar that he set for himself last year, in a lot of people's minds, he's still a slow white dude who doesn't play great defense and just stat pads on a team that doesn't play much defense and plays high scoring games. Maybe that's just my opinion, but I feel like the country has kind of taken that opinion too. And then book night, I wouldn't have him at four. I know that this is just you being in love with the, uh, book night of the round table I mean he is averaging like, yeah he is averaging like 24 points a game though and did just score 40 on a top 10 team yeah correct but and, and, and my point would be I have a couple other guys that I like more I wrote down Quentin Grimes and then Houston lost to Tulsa last night so that kind of hurt me uh Jared Butler you can make the same case with Kispert except for his numbers aren't necessarily as elite yeah, but they, the 15 season, and 7 is not worth part of the year. I'm sorry. Yeah, he Butler's going to have to be a lot better. He's going to have to have tons of moments. And I guess he'll have the plenty of opportunities because the Big 12 has some elite teams there. Sure. Um, and then you had Jalen Wilson in the last rankings, and I just said he'd still be in the conversation for four, not for number one yet. But um, best player on this Kansas team is probably going to be somewhere in that conversation. Uh, best player on any – any team that competes for the top of the big 12 is probably in this conversation. Um, but going through the list of other players, other teams and best players on other teams, there's no one who's playing good enough basketball on a competitive enough team with an elite enough statistical output to be, to feel like in my opinion that they are worthy or that you're omitting them. So I like your list um, and I can't wait to continue to see how this develops. But if I could, if I could root for or pick a guy who I want to see win it, it's definitely Marcus Carr. I love watching this guy play. And I love that we were early on the booth mobile. Booth mobile only got on it because he was kind of good. And I liked the nickname. So sometimes there you go. Sometimes you luck into greatness. 
Hashtag analysis. Um, all right, let's close out the show with scholarships and sanctions. Um, I I have one which gave me plenty of laughs la- uh, yesterday. I don't know necessarily if you saw this, um, but my scholarship goes to respect local TV reporter in Birmingham. Did you see this? Oh, the guy, the saving fishing thing. Yes. Yes. So a local TV reporter in Birmingham, Alabama, Rick, I think it's pronounced Carl. He tweeted about a woman who was uh, a a reporter at the Rose Bowl press conference, which it's another story. Um, I think you sanctioned this last week or such. Just the lunacy of the fact that the Rose Bowl is being played in Arlington, Texas. Um, she started her question out by saying, hi, Saban. And he tweeted, Alabama football coach Nick Saban held his Rose Bowl newser today, and a reporter addressed the coach as, hi, Saban. His name is Coach Saban, not Nick, not Saban. Here's why. He wrote out this giant Facebook post, which was laughable and made even funnier by the fact that his Twitter bio said, went fishing with Saban and Feinbaum once which I feel like is both one of the most Southern things of all time and one of the dumbest humble brags ever. But I'm just amazed. I'm just amazed. And so I will say respect because we learned that you're supposed to address coaches by saying coach. Some people in the journalism world were super offended by this and said you should never address coaches by coach. I say mix it up, ask them different ways, say their names different ways, have a little spice of variety in life, and don't always ask every question in the same way. That's just me. That's just me. So where do you fall on this? I would just, yeah, I agree with you. I I think that, you know, it's not like they're a doctor. They They didn't get a degree that gave them the title of coach before their name. That said, Calling somebody just by their last name is really weird. Like, I don't go up to you and go, hi, Swartz. Nobody was like to Michael Jordan, what's up, Jordan? I guess people may have, but people, LeBron James, what's up, James? No, people don't do that. That's weird. That's really weird. Hi, Gallagher. That's strange. I don't have I a sanction problem. that. It is a little weird. It's a it's weird, but I think that the thing he was getting at was like, it no, was, yeah, I get you. That's wrong too. I think he was getting at like a lack of respect, and I was like, what? Are, like, what? Are, he's not like some deity. I understand that in the South, he probably is <laughs> yeah, held in that regard. But you know, yeah, no, I just think it's weird that she said save it. Like that's weird. Both situations a little a little odd. All right, what you Everybody got? Everybody gets an L, uh, <laughs> including Sean Miller and Arizona and Auburn, for this matter, of just like saying this year's a throwaway. We're going to self-sanction. The NCAA shouldn't care about this. I mean, we've talked about why self-sanctioning is stupid, but the NCAA should just punish them anyway because it's so clear that they don't. It's a lost year. They don't care. They're not – I mean, Arizona might make the tournament, but they're, they, they will. probably won't. You, you say they will. I'm not sure. But – Well, they won't now. Like, this is just irrelevant. It's not like it's actually going to cost them anything. For what? Why are you self-sanctioning? Just, uh, just 
Sean clearly did something wrong. And, like, I don't know how him and Will Wade just continue to outlive these things by, like, making these little half measures to say, ah, well, we did something against the rules, but we're cool, right? I don't get it. So, sanction Arizona. Well, I, I wrote down – I had a scholarship to give out, and it was two self-imposed bans um, because I think that they are both the dumbest and greatest thing ever. Um, and I actually wrote down respect to Arizona for self-imposing a postseason ban on a year where you're actually, like, competitive and they've been having success. It's not like they just had some stupid loss to Tarleton State or something weird that happened where Sean Miller was like, all right, yep, let's pull the plug on this year. I think he's just trying to save face. And I think it's an administrative thing because Sean Miller's not a guy who's been backing down. Like, he's not budging on this. He thinks he's innocent. Well, self-sanctioned. So, um, self-imposed, yeah, we've been plenty clear on this podcast what our opinions are of self-imposing. And we think that you should fight the NCAA till the very last day. So, all right, my sanction goes to Trophy Security. Uh, this happened this afternoon. As you were making your trip uh, to the great town of Tempe to call a volleyball or, sorry, wrestling scrimmage, Wisconsin quarterback Graham Mertz, uh, a noted Overland Park, Kansas native, was dancing and dropped the Mayo, the Duke's Mayo Bowl trophy. It shattered across the floor. They duct taped a Duke's Mayo bottle onto the trophy. Um, this made its way all the way around social media. It was incredible. It was everything that bowl season is. I hadn't really been in tune with bowl season this year. This was actually the first bowl game that I watched any of, um, just because it's been a little odd and I didn't get into the bowl mania because the bowl mania started like right after the conference championship game. It was two days later. We were having North Texas play App State. It was just too much for my system over system overload. Um, but yeah, Graham Mertz, you got to be better than this. I'm with you. Duke's mail. Incredible. Like, I've been saying the word incredible a lot tonight, but Duke's mail is awesome and very Southern. And that should just be the bull trophy from here on out. It's just the mayonnaise jug strapped to a trophy. Yeah. Also, that's all I got tonight. That, that's perfectly fine. My last comment on it uh, in regards to this situation, why do we have trophies that have loose impediments on the top of them that can just easily fall off? It's just, just so Graham Mertz can break them and strap a jar of mayonnaise to a trophy. It got them a lot more publicity than, than a, a trophy that would have been firmly intact. So I would agree. Great strategy. That's PR 101. All right. We are, uh, we've, we've gone long. This is a long podcast. We hope uh, if, if you're still listening, we hope that you have a great last day of 2020, uh, a year that was not so great. And we hope that 2021 is a better year. Um, we have big plans for the show. We can't wait to unveil them. We can't wait to keep things rolling. Um, and we hope that the, that the year starts out with some competitive college football game. So once again, for Peyton Gallagher, I'm Gabe Swartz. Like, rate, review, subscribe, and we will see you
gotta know that heat check. Hey. Everybody gotta know that we next. Yeah. Doesn't matter if it's Sunday or a Monday, you know that we flex. True. You can never make it more obvious. You checking for the heat, that's cold. That's cold, that's cold. Get it to the top of the top of this. You can never reach these hoes. in the booth and we spin the truth. Hey. We inspire the youth and we get to the loop. You do what it does and we do what it do. We turn to the max and they got you on mute. You. Ooh, flow so high, so you know hey. I had to run it back. Blazes a ball, and we running hey. like a running back. Gabe, bro, I try, so you know hey. we having fun with that. Turn you in the aisle, so you know hey. we ain't no coming back. Now we done with that.